to another episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm the host and producer of this show, Olga Peters, and this is where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I want to welcome to the show regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, one of three reps from Brattleboro. Hey there, Emily. Good morning, Olga. So nice to see you. And I have been enjoying so much how every time you say the intro, you put the emphasis on a slightly different syllable to see what happens. And that's so fun, too. (laughs) Thank you. I I practice. Can you tell? (laughs) I also want to welcome to the show Representative Mike McCarthy from St. Albans, who is chair of the House GovOps Committee. Uh, So glad you can join us, Mike. Very happy to be here again, Olga. Thanks for having me on. Well, we are talking about H-127, which is a bill, if anyone's not aware, to legalize online sports betting in Vermont. And it's been going, I think you just were working with it in your committee, Mike, and it just went to Ways and Means, Emily. So it's now sitting in your committee. (laughs) And I'm, I'm looking forward to diving into this issue about sports betting in Vermont, because I have to say, as someone who grew up in one of the more tourist areas of the state, I guess I was always surprised that we didn't have more sports betting. It just, it seems like tourism, gambling, all those sorts of things kind of go together, <laughs> at least in Olga's brain. I'm wondering, Mike, can you... Tell me why sports betting is not like a bigger thing in Vermont. Yeah, I want to say that, yes, the H-127 started in House GovOps, uh, Government Operations and Military Affairs, my committee. And um, we worked on the the policy and the recommendations of a study committee last year that really delved into some of the bigger choices and made recommendations about this. We'll get into those policy choices. And my committee passed the bill out on a vote of nine to three. And because obviously it has to do with money and affects the revenues of the state, went to Chair Kornheiser's committee over in Ways and Means for them to think about the financial implications and whether the model in the bill was right. But um, the history of gambling and betting in Vermont, you know, my experience with it anyway, my experience with it and the testimony that we heard is really that gambling was just illegal in Vermont, period, right? We just have, we're an outright prohibition state. So if you think about it as analogous to other sins or vices like, you know, alcohol and our evolution around the prohibition of alcohol in the 20th century, the prohibition on cannabis that we've recently uh, taken a bunch of steps to have a tax and regulated market that is now just in its you know infancy in Vermont. In some ways, gambling and especially sports betting is kind of analogous to those other sins where the prohibition failed and we kind of need to acknowledge that the prohibition has failed. So the only real legal wagering at all or sort of putting up your money for the chance of being able to grow it <laughs> has been the Vermont lottery for the last, you know, two decades plus. And that was really fiercely debated. I mean, there, there are folks who are still in the legislature now who were opposed to the Vermont lottery then and uh, are continue to be opposed to it now. And when you think about the way that the Vermont lottery is the one legal way that people can uh, sort of risk their money for the 
the idea that they might get uh, more in return and where that money goes to, there's another sort of analogous policy path with the history in Vermont. So the, the reason you don't see casinos or Kino or even legal things like, you know, a poker tournament in Vermont is that gambling is illegal in Vermont. It is, it is absolutely prohibited except for the lottery. And then if this bill passes, we're carving out a, a legal regulated space for online mobile sports betting that's already legal in all of our neighboring states. It's about to go online in Massachusetts, which, which will be the last of our neighbors to put it into effect. And so right now, we know that one, people are doing this illegally through VPNs or just illegal websites, which are not regulated um, and people aren't sort of protected from a consumer perspective. And then we also know that folks are like driving over the border and sitting in their car right over the border to do this on their phones, which again, not what I would do with my time or money, but I do all kinds of other ridiculous things with my time and money. So who am I to judge them in their time and money? And there's one other form of, of wagering that is legal in Vermont, which is those, um, the split tick, what are they called? The split uh, tickets? So uh, it's called? Pull tabs. Pull tabs. Yeah. Yes. What are pull tabs? Are those like scratch tickets? No. So scratch tickets are part of the Vermont lottery. Pull tabs are like a game that people will play in bars. And the reason that I sort of don't put it in the same category as the lottery is that the earnings from those have to go to a charity. They're not, the house, as it were, isn't getting the benefit of those pull tabs, but it's a an activity, a gambling activity that um, people do primarily in bars. And so it's kind of an entertainment that raises money for charities and is typically really low dollar. So I put it in a different, little bit of a different category in my mind, but Emily's absolutely right that that is another form of legal, uh, legal gambling. And honestly, like also raffles. Yeah, so 50-50 raffles uh, are kind of in a, a gray area. <laughs> I think that's the thing. Like, even the those tickets are so controversial, like, within the legislature that people should not be doing this. And then stuff like when people have a pool at work, mm-hmm. that's actually illegal. So our relationship with gambling and the law is one where we have a lot of sort of willfully looking the other way and not enforcing the laws that are on the books, which some people are comfortable with that and in that space. But the online sports betting has gotten to a place where there are so many Vermonters exposing themselves to financial risk, cybersecurity and identity theft risk. And Unlike a lot of other illegal activity, we actually can quantify a a good portion of this activity because of something called geofencing. So to get at some of the history of this further, a few years back, you know, I'd say a decade or, or more ago, we saw a rise in sites for daily fantasy sports, fantasy sports leagues, where people could say, I'm not... I'm not wagering on the sports outcome, but I'm getting together with some of my friends and I'm choosing a sort of hypothetical football team, let's say. And based on the statistics of each of the individual players that might be on many different actual real life teams, I will either beat my friends or they'll beat me and we'll 
win, you know, a certain predetermined portion based on our final outcome at the end of the season of the pool that we've put together. Um, and that was ruled by the courts to be a game of skill, not actual wagering <laughs> where you're betting against the house and it's just a game of chance. So because that was ruled a game of skill, it uh, was legalized, you know, it essentially was de facto legal and people have been doing daily fantasy sports on the same platforms that are major sports betting operators in many neighboring states. So that's really important for Vermonters to know is that companies with brands like DraftKings and FanDuel are kind of the some of the bigger players in this market. They started out as these fantasy sports league operators and it has evolved because of a case that the state of New Jersey brought to the Supreme Court <laughs> that essentially blew the doors open and said that sports wagering inside of a state would be legal. And so it's this inside of an individual state where it can't cross state lines, but a state can on its own have its own little sports betting market has led to these platforms working with third-party operators, um, like a company we heard testimony from called GeoComply that does this for New York. So they're the provider that essentially is responsible for when people get on their laptop or their smartphone, however, whatever device they're using to use the application and they go on the sports betting site or the application, it uses their internet, their internet identity to geolocate them, right? So it uses the information from their device to say, oh yes, you are actually in New York, you can legally bet here. Or if somebody's on a New York app and they're in Vermont, it will disallow them from placing any bets. Mm -hmm. So that geofencing fencing has created the ability for them to say, hey, in a certain amount of period, we've seen that they told us that in six, a six month period from September to February of this year, they saw almost 140,000 attempts to place bets in Vermont on legal uh, sites in New York from 16,800 separate accounts. So what does that mean? That means that thousands of Vermonters are, are downloading those apps and trying to place bets. And then hundreds, if not thousands of them, we can see their activity that they physically will go to New York. And then we can see that they try to bet on their way. Once they get over the border, they bet and then they come back and we can track the data points of when their attempts <laughs> are. And we can't tell who those individuals are, but we can see that they're the aggregated data of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people doing this just in that short six month period during the football season. Mm -hmm. So what that led me to believe is that the harm from problem gambling and the potential for identity theft or criminal liability to Vermonters who are already participating in this activity of illegal sports wagering was something that we should probably go ahead and finally realize that the prohibition has failed. We can help protect these Vermonters with consumer protections, investments in the prevention and the treatment of problem gambling, and just bring this gray or black market activity into the light and make it safer for Vermonters. And just, uh, I have a question for Emily, but before I do, the GeoComply actually submitted a report to the legislature, which I will link to in the show notes, as well as the Sports Betting Committee's report that they submitted in December. So if anyone wants to read those. So Emily, way back in the before COVID times, 
we actually did a series on on like sin legislation and mm-hmm. regulating sin. And I feel that this gambling falls right into that. I know we, we skipped this. Yeah, we didn't do gamble. Well, probably because it's, yeah, yeah, it's not in front of us like it is some other things. So how are you sitting with that? Like, what's your what's your point of view on? It's pretty similar in that I have no interest in doing it. I don't really understand it. I feel like it's for a whole, it's for people who are not me. It's mostly for like middle class, younger middle-aged white guys. It's like for, you know, guys like Mike. And my brother's-in-law, not me personally. <laughs> he knows people. He knows people. I and but like that's okay. Like not my sin. I have my own sins. And again, like I really want us to build legislation based on how we actually behave rather than how we wish people behaved. And this is a perfect example of this. Like it's happening no matter what. Better that a one, we collect tax revenue from it from the ways and means perspective. And two, we are able to put in place safeguards. Um, and I think really the technology of it compared to say, you know, we heard testimony from one of the commissioners in New York of sports betting, where like, you know, betting in New York is a whole other thing, right? And he was saying, you know, with the technology on the regulated platform, you can just shut someone off when they go sort of beyond their bank account, beyond their means. You can put a limit on how much you want to bet that's fenced off that you can't change your mind on later. There's like all of these sort of security protections you can put on your own device for yourself and some that we are would likely are going to mandate the platform make available for people. And the guy from New York was like, and that's really different than like someone coming to your house to break your kneecaps. And I was like, yeah, it is. <laughs> that's true. And so similar to just, you know, like we want to make sure that if people are buying drugs, we know people are going to buy drugs, they're safe drugs or safer drugs um, and that people are using them in a safe environment. You know what the or, ingredients are anyways. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And that, you know, if people are, interested in selling, you know, their labor in a certain way, whether that be sex work or waiting tables, that they're safe in doing that, that they have the protections of the law in doing that. I'm all in on the sports wagering. We call it sports wagering in the legislature instead of sports betting, which I find fairly amusing. I don't really know what the difference between the two words are. It's like trying to start saying cannabis instead of weed or flower instead of bud, but it's just like, it's the same thing. It's where everyone's doing this anyway. Let's all sort of, you know, get over ourselves to some degree and make sure that people are doing it safely. This subject also makes me smile. I wish I had found it. I took a photo when I was still living in London because I don't know about the all of UK, but at least in London, there are uh, bookmaker shops, like legal bookmaker shops. And many of them would put in their window, like the top wagers that they were taking for that week. And some of them you would expect, like who's going to win this weekend's football game, you know, and taking odds. But the photo I took, I think it was during Royal Ascot. I don't remember, but like wagers on what color dress so-and-so was going to wear and who was going to show up to the event. I can get in on that. (laughs) 
like, and it was brilliant. I'm like, oh my gosh, they they have um, evolved for for making bets in the UK way beyond we have been making bets on anything. But it it also made me think about this concept of regulating, keeping things in the light, and and keeping things safer with consumer protections. Are there certain consumer protections that we really want to make sure are in place? That is such a good question. So there are a whole number of responsible gaming policies that this bill requires the operators to adopt. So an important piece of the technology that Emily was talking about is that there will only be somewhere between two and six licensed operators of those platforms under this bill. So that makes Vermont, if we adopt H-127 and it becomes law in anything like its current form, we would essentially be a control state. The way we're a control state for alcohol, we would be a control state for sports betting, where there would be these licensed agents of the state that would be highly regulated by the Department of Liquor and Lottery that would oversee them. And they have to, in order to do business in Vermont, follow these responsible gambling and and consumer protection norms. And there are a whole number of them. The ability, like Emily was talking about, having the consumer be able to place daily, monthly, and annual limits on the amount that they that they can bet and that those things can't be changed in a short period of time. So if you basically say my daily limit for putting money into my wagering account is $500 and you want to raise that, it actually on most of the the platforms has to have a minimum of 24 hours before that goes into effect. So there's kind of this cooling off period where you can't just while you're on the phone, just up the amount of money that you're betting and sort of, you know, bet your whole mortgage payment away. Right. So there's those kinds of in-app protections. And then there's also a really important one that Emily alluded to, which is self-exclusion. And what a lot of states are starting to adopt is not just in one app. So one operator having the ability for somebody to say, I don't want to play this. I, this is a compulsion for me. I want to self-exclude. I'm done for six months or for life even. They can pretty easily within those apps self-exclude, but now we're requiring, like some other states have started to require a universal self-exclusion where all of the legal operators, if if you self-exclude from one, you're off all of them and the apps won't let you place bets on those platforms. So the technology does allow for people to kind of regulate their own behavior and provide some safeguards and reminders about, you know, you've been on the platform for this long and you're getting close to the limit that you've placed for yourself. And, and then those kind of hard limits on the ability to, to exceed and for you to be able as a, a Vermonter to say, I have a problem with this. Like, I just don't want to participate it any anymore and remove that temptation to go on and, and bet. Um, that's all part of the bill. And, those kind of protections were really crucial to us being able to get support in my committee for that. And there's a whole bunch, you know, there's also, you can't sort of like switch devices and have it, you know, trick it. So local newspaper, the Brattleboro Reformer, you know, you get like three free articles a month, but it's like such a decrepit website that if you switch browsers, you can get another three Mm -hmm. articles, but like a 
a quality website does not allow that kind of trickery. And none of these allow that kind of trickery. Um, you also can only link to a bank account. You can't link to a credit card. There's a really a pretty incredible suite of protections built in for someone to both sort of enforce their own limits and for some artificial limits from the providers. There's also any a percentage of the revenue from this for the state is going to go into the state's problem gambling program, which up until this point has really not gotten much attention and is not a particularly robust program. And so this is a real opportunity to also build that program out so that it's meeting the needs of more Vermonters. We have just five minutes left in this first segment. And in the second half, I really want us to dive a little bit more into the nitty gritty of the bill. But just for now, what is what do you think is crucial for listeners to understand? I think that people are doing this anyway. And so whether we think it's a good thing to do or not, it's happening. Um, and I think it's the, in that case, it's the government's role to ensure that it's safe. Mike? I would build on that, totally agree with that, and, and build on it by saying that if it were still illegal at the federal level, probably wouldn't have made this a priority for my committee to work on. But the fact that so many Vermonters are participating in this, so many Vermonters are hearing the ads to participate on these platforms in neighboring states that are legal, and that we're the last state in our area to consider doing this, those are really key considerations that I think people should understand. And that at this point, the harm that does come from this, and and there is really legitimate harm, like there isn't so many of the sin behavior that, that we discussed, right? There really is harm. The I think the best we can do is put some protections on that for consumers and also be able to, to get the revenue from taxing this behavior so that we can reinvest that into things that Vermonters need. Wonderful. Thank you, Mike. The Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro will return right after we hear from some of our underwriters. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, we are. I'm talking with Representative Emily Kornheiser as well as Representative Mike McCarthy. We're talking about sports betting in Vermont. And, Emily, what are Olga. we remind folks of? The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, respectively, and not the station, nor the channel, nor their employers, nor friends. Mm -hmm. So, Emily. Well, actually, before we go to Emily, because I know the H-127, the bill we're talking about, which would legalize and regulate online mobile sports betting, is in ways and means right now. But before we jump to you, Mike, um, there was a report that came out in December, uh, just the end of December, on sports betting and made recommendations. And one of the things I believe the report talked about is how much revenue this 
uh, new system could generate. And I think it was, um, I think, and I heard in a news report, it was what, like 12 million in the first year or something like that. I'm losing my notes. Yeah. So the, I, I would say that the net revenue to the state in the model that we are seeming to go down the path and represent Kornheiser should really talk about how she's teeing up that conversation in ways and means. Cause I tried to kind of keep that conversation a little bit uh, vague because my committee's jurisdiction is about the policy and the administration and the, the mechanics of the money, I think is much more in the policy world of ways and means. So we basically, the policy recommendation that, that feeds into this from the sports betting study committee. So even though the act is called sports wagering, <laughs> the sports betting study committee uh, met last fall and in December, you're right, their report came out and it compared the whole spectrum of how other states have been implementing sports wagering, sports betting, and the marketplaces they set up and how the revenue was impacted by that. And I would say that there's essentially the two extremes are to have very low operators and a whole lot of regulation. So that's like Washington, D.C., one state-run operator. The other extreme is a state like Tennessee that just gave licenses basically to any anybody like super low qualifications, lots of competition. Um, and so you can certainly get more revenue by having a, a high tax rate and a lot of competition. You can get not very much re revenue by having you know very little competition, which leaves a lot of the activity still on the illegal market. So it's like if you're trying to bring the activity of the, the betting into the legal market, you've got to have the places to go, the kinds of operators that people who want to place bets can get the lines, that the actual opportunities to bet that they want. So if they want to bet on particular sports, for instance, or particular activities, they, you know, they need to be available to them and they need to be reliable. So one of the things we heard, for instance, was that the um, application that DC uh, set up went down during the Super Bowl. So imagine you've got one legal betting platform that isn't capable of handling the, the volume of consumer activity and it just crashes. That is an invitation for those people to go into a neighboring state or illegal markets. And that's not great. So those were all considerations. And so we in House GovOps and Military Affairs, we looked at the recommendation to just be a control state, to have some competition so that the there would be multiple operators. So we said between two and six, uh, but to have those be highly regulated. And then I'll turn it over to Emily to talk about sort of the revenue. But I think what we were looking at was probably like $10 million over three years as the, the thing ramps up uh, in terms of net revenue to the state. And before Emily jumps in, the sports betting would be regulated through our existing Liquor and Lottery Commission, correct? That's right. And so there's, we envision there being fees from the operators that would pay for the actual administration and staff at the Department of Liquor and Lottery. Uh, but that's right. So DLL would, since they operate the control functions on alcohol and have experience with that, and they have the Vermont Lottery is under their purview, um, seemed like the right home. And that was the recommendation of the study committee. 
So Emily, along with being probably very grateful that you didn't work for the Washington DC company that went down during the Super Bowl, <laughs> can we have a moment of silence for anyone who had to answer the phone that night? Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about how the, at this point in the development of the bill, that's the words I'm looking for, the revenue will be structured. Yeah, it's so there's some interesting balances that we need to strike that Mike referenced. So we want to make sure that however we're setting up the market, the operators entering the market need to be able to set sort of, it's not prices, it's like the parameters of the bets, but they need to set them at a price that's sort of low enough, basically, like they need to be profitable enough that they would be more profitable, that it would be, folks would be likely to bet there rather than the illicit market, right? So if we don't make the market accessible enough to the operators that are entering it, they wouldn't be able to compete with the illicit market. And that's something that like we talked about pretty intensely in the context of cannabis, right? Yeah. You don't want to make it so hard to enter the market that it's actually like you're offering a better deal to consumers when it's illegal, right? And so there's that piece of it. We do want to maximize the revenue to the state because we have a lot <laughs> we have a lot of resources and there's like, you know, politically there's some folks who are super uncomfortable with the sin but willing to do it for the revenue. And so it's also really important to maximize the revenue to the state for that. We also have a teeny tiny market. And so, you know, you said you don't know why anyone would want to enter it. A lot of these companies, I think, have a few different sort of things built into their revenue model that make them want to enter Vermont. One is, I think they're sort of thinking long-term, they're thinking nationally. And so they want to make sure that they have an opening for sort of like, you know, to make sure that everyone possible can enter. So that if, you know, someone goes to another state, they would be sort of like, attached to that brand, or um, if it's legalized, like actually legalized nationally, which it isn't right now, it's just legalized at the state level, but in all states. And then the, but it's sort of like a, in international development, we call it like a base of the pyramid revenue model, which is basically like every dollar really counts. And you just want to get sort of as many single dollars as you can. And so we want to be really careful to make sure that we're creating enough space for operators to enter. We want competition for the reasons that Mike described, but we don't want too much competition because then none of the operators will actually be able to get a big enough corner of the market that it's worthwhile for them to be in Vermont. That's a good point. And sort of different than cannabis, we're not looking at like promoting and sustaining a local market for this. Like this is, is like, you know, multinational corporate levels of technology that are needed to do this well. So this is not something that like we want to create like a Vermont led startup industry on, which also creates sort of a different pricing model because the technology needed to do this well and to do it safely is just sort of like beyond the reach of someone in their garage. Mm -hmm. And so what's interesting is that states are doing this in really different ways. So we want to make sure that we have some, we want to have more than one license for the competition. We don't want to have a lot of licenses because again, then there would be too much competition and no one would be able to be profitable. And interestingly, as part of that sort of negotiation, 
rather than setting up a specific tax on this, we set it up as a revenue share, which is very similar to a tax. Yeah. But a tax is selected in statute Mm -hmm. and a revenue share is sort of negotiated contractually with the operators. And we're doing that in order to essentially like maximize the tax. Because if I set sort of a 20% tax in statute, but there are these companies that are willing to go to 30% in order to operate in the state, better that we do that we sort of negotiate that 30%. And I can't negotiate with the operators around the tax rate. What is also really interesting about this and is there was this incredible expose by the New York Times this fall. And I think like mostly the New York Times is like sort of um, has been slowly drifting or perhaps I've become more aware of it's just like basically like a lot of liberal claptrap most of the time these days. But like just like not the depth of reporting is not there the way it used to be because I think people don't have time to do it with like the, you know, the you're looking for clicks. Mm-hmm. I think we have a lot of journalists that are forced into position to be looking for clicks. But this was sort of like ProPublica level deep dive journalism this fall. And it was a series of nested articles looking at state level sports wagering regulation and how the sports wagering industry had basically like totally gotten a lock on sports wagering and lobby, like was just sort of like lobbying state legislators to not protect their constituents or the revenue of their states. And my first, like the first article I read, I was like, oh my God, we can't do this. This is outrageous. We'll be doomed. This is a terrible industry. And then by the fourth article, I was like, oh my goodness, the New York Times is telling us exactly how to do this well. And it was amazing. It was like a guide of like red flags to all the tricky ways that the industry would try to keep us from maximizing both protections and revenue to the state. Interesting. And so one piece of that is basically sort of like what's excluded from a revenue share. So when we tax a corporation, there's so many things, mostly because of national tax law, but also state level tax law that are excluded from what's considered revenue, right? Like you get to write off the wages you pay to people and you get to write off the advertising that you do and you get to write off all of these things, right? You tax on net, not on gross. Mm-hmm. And that like that gap between a net and gross is like the most frustrating thing about creating good corporate tax policy. Mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone else has like their special, the most frustrating thing about corporate tax policy. I'm just saying. Yes, Mike, do you have one? <laughs> But no, the, that, that's that's it. That's the one. <laughs> but in the context of this revenue sharing thing, it's really interesting. So we revenue share based on gross. Oh. And we are like, you know, there's requests to exclude like promotional deals and all these things. And just no, no, we are. And so anything that the corporations are putting in to their promotion, to their business operating model, that all comes out of sort of their side of the gross. Wow. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's it's everything after the winnings are paid out and the federal excise taxes are paid. What's hilarious about this kind of betting being technically illegal at the federal level is that there's actually an excise tax on the activity. So it's like for tax purposes, it's sort of, it's taxable, but it's actually, you know, pre the Supreme Court decision was illegal. So that's another little quirk in the tax policy. But but yeah, Emily's right. I mean, the they're going to have to 
do whatever administrative activities and, and expenses to run the platforms out of their part of the split in the revenue share. Not because essentially they're negotiating a license to operate. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of the parameters of the license to operate. Whereas for other companies, we're not offering them sort of a license to operate in Vermont. They have a right to operate, you know, like just like a random corporate, like Amazon, right? We're not offering them a license to operate. They just naturally have a license to operate and we have a right to tax them. But this is sort of a negotiated license to operate. Okay. Yeah, I guess, you know, when I was reading through some of the news coverage and, and also I wasn't able to get through the whole uh, sports betting committee's report, but I was wondering, you know, why companies would even want to do a revenue share with the state. So thank you for talking about kind of like national, like what their national focus might be and, and that type of thing. They so, prefer a tax rate. Th- what's that? They prefer a tax rate. Ah, okay. Interesting. And Emily, in your while this bill is in your committee, kind of like what stage is it at? Is it ready to move on? Is it, what are some other boxes maybe you need to tick before you can do that? We're doing our due diligence work. We, the bill, when it came to us, Mike talked about sort of the fees that operators pay. So fees are technically supposed to sort of cover the cost of administering something, Mm -hmm. right? And then taxes or revenue shares are sort of the profit to the state. And so the fees in the original bill were sort of strangely set up that it was sort of the same fee no matter how many operators were negotiated into the state, because there's going to be an open bid process. We might have two operators, we might have six, depending on how many operators bid for the license to operate and that the department accepts as being sort of a good deal for the state. And so we're changing the fee structure so that each operator has their own fee that they're subject to pay, because that's just sort of like a good fee discipline. And then we're going to likely put in a minimum revenue share into the statute. And then there's just like a little bits of cleanup because whenever a bill leaves a committee, there's always sort of something that legislative council mix missed. And then the committee just, you know, the committee still has to vote on something, even if there's stuff that's not in their policy purview, Mm. because we have to vote on the whole bill. And so we're like digging into the advertising rules a little bit to just make sure that we're all comfortable, that we're protecting Vermonters to the greatest extent possible and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, Mike, what have you been hearing from folks, both pro and con, around this bill? I think that the majority of the con is about being frustrated with the activity and the behavior of gambling itself. It's mm-hmm. it's a con that's about really preferring the prohibition and not having the state kind of sanction, you know, have the appearance of sanctioning a sin behavior by making it legal. So that's the majority of the con. When we recognize, you know, Emily and I have talked about this throughout the show, that the prohibition has just failed. I mean, this activity is happening. Vermonters are doing it in really unsafe ways on, you know, out of country websites where who knows if there's their money is actually going to be paid out accurately on the odds, if they're you know, financial information is going to end up on the dark web, all of that stuff. So that piece, 
I feel like is we, we sort of set that aside and we're moving forward for, for most legislators, um, at least the folks on my committee, the vast majority, but it didn't come out of my committee unanimously. It was a nine to three vote. And I think those three votes, you know, they're uncomfortable with the activity, but even more than that, there were a couple of the members of, of our committee that they wanted to be convinced by data that I think is impossible to get that, that there will be more good done and more harm prevention, more harm reduction than harm creation. Mm -hmm. And it's just very, very difficult to know exactly what the consequences will be. We're doing many things in this bill to protect consumers. We're going to invest in far more problem gambling and, you know, compulsive and addiction treatment than we have today. Right now, the there's a really anemic <laughs> little contract that the state has for problem gambling support and treatment and prevention with, you know, just as part of the Vermont lottery program. So all of those things for me have convinced me that we've done more harm reduction than harm creation. But there is the real threat that by having this be legal, that there will be more people who wouldn't have otherwise done this that will get into it and will, you know, lose money, come to financial harm, et cetera. But I think on balance, it's still worth doing. And that's really the main, the main thing is that there's just so much of this activity happening. Now we're not capturing the revenue. We're not protecting Vermonters that on, on balance, it's really time for us to get this into the legal and regulated space. Mm-hmm. And, and to- sorry, Emily, we should probably note that there's a limit. You have to be 21 or older to access these sites. And there has been conversations around advertising and being aimed towards children, I think are two other conversations that have happened. Yeah, you have to be 21 or older. Advertising can't be aimed at children. And actually also advertising can't be sort of around within colleges, like sort of focused on colleges and cannot you cannot gamble on the wages wagers can't be focused on vermont based sports unless they're part of a national tournament which i also thought was sort of huh. wild uh-huh. yeah. okay yeah Thank can't you. can't bet on individual catamounts games but if they're playing in the ncaa that's an exception because that again that's about that balance between you know do you want to sort of prohibit something you don't like, or are you trying to get betting that is definitely happening? Like the NCAA basketball tournament is one of the most bet on things. And so we want to make sure that that, you know, popular thing is actually part of the regulated market because that behavior is definitely happening. So that, hence that policy choice. Thank you. I cut you off, Emily, earlier. I'm sorry. Oh, I think, you know, there's, a bunch of areas around sort of revenue and sin that get really, really uncomfortable. So, you know, we have these massive tobacco taxes, right, that are designed quite explicitly to prevent tobacco use, but the state profits from that tobacco use and we are dependent on that revenue, right? And we do that in a whole wide variety of places. And so we're creating revenue sources that we are hoping will be reduced long-term, essentially, and that that's uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of people. There's also a few, there's sort of different pieces of sort of like sin taxes versus legalizing and regulating sin, right? And so a sin tax is that you are making something so expensive 
through tax policy that you are hoping no one does it, right? And that's what we do with tobacco. Mm -hmm. And that's what we do to some degree with alcohol. And people talk about doing that with like gasoline for cars, Mm -hmm. but like that's what, you know, carbon taxes are sort of sometimes designed hypothetically to do, but like that doesn't make any sense because people need to drive. And so that's why we don't do that because no one can afford that. But with things like cannabis taxation or lottery taxation, we are sort of just acknowledging that this is going to happen regardless whether or not the state's involved, which is really different from tobacco use, right? Which has like always been sort of, has been like sort of like a legal corporate run thing for a long time. And so it's not that we are taxing it to the point where we're hoping no one does it. We're acknowledging that people do it and bringing it into the realm of taxation. So it's a little bit different, but I think people equate the two things and get worried about what that means for state revenue. Mm, Okay. Thank you, Emily. Mike, before we head out, what do you think is important for folks to understand at this point, especially folks who might be feeling uncomfortable with the activity of gambling? I think that we've done our best to really limit the way that folks can risk their hard-earned money on gambling with the sports wagering in a way that still pulls it into the light of the regulated market. This is not going to lead to casinos or any kind of physical gambling. This is just about online and mobile technology that is available in neighboring states. Um, So we're not really changing anything about the way Vermont looks and feels by having this activity be legal. I also think it's important to know that thousands of Vermonters are already participating in fantasy sports leagues that are on similar platform to some of the big national operators that we had talked about, like DraftKings and FanDuel and that kinds of things. So I think there's a lot of like adjacent activity already happening legally in Vermont to this. So that's not a major change. And I just want people to know that we've been thoughtful on my committee and Emily's committee, and I'm, I'm sure our Senate colleagues will as well, about whether this is the right thing to do for Vermonters. And we take that responsibility really seriously. Emily, anything you wanted to add or think people should understand right now? Yeah, I think doing this in the context of Vermont that doesn't really have a long history of betting or a strong culture of betting Mm -hmm. is really, really different and will be sort of a much more like people are already doing this. The people who are already doing this are already adjacent to this will likely continue doing this, but it's not going to, you know, Vermont's not going to turn to a casino culture. So when we look at sort of legislation from, you know, Nevada, it's just like a totally different conversation there Mm -hmm. or, you know, there's a few states in the South that do this, but only on like riverboat casinos. Like that's just not, that's not our vibe. And that's not what's going to happen here, no matter what. Like this is not sort of, this is not about culture change. It's about like making a tweak within like edges of current culture. Where will this bill goes go next once it's been voted out of your committee, Emily? Once it leaves the Ways and Means Committee, because there would be new staff positions in it, it's going to go, it would go to the Appropriations Committee. That is all the time we have on this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. Mike, if people want to learn more about you, where can they go? 
Oh, folks can uh, visit my website, which is ilikemikevt.com, uh, and they can see what's going on officially on the Vermont legislators web legislature's website um, at uh, the House Government Operations and Military Affairs Committee page. Wonderful. And Emily, if people want to connect with you or learn more about you. Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org and sign up for my newsletter or find links to my social media and contact information, as well as, again, going to the Vermont Legislature's website. And the Montpelier Happy Hour can be found every Friday at 2 p.m. on WVEW, as well as BCTV. We thank you for your work, BCTV, getting us out over the, the broadcast airwaves. And wherever you find your podcast, you can subscribe to us there as well. Hey, everybody, take care.